When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, hello, everybody. It's Corey Poirier back with the latest in our interview uh, series. Uh, This edition, we're bringing you a brand new guest who uh, this is my first time uh, interviewing him inside our network. So I'm always super stoked to bring on somebody new. And so, uh, Jay, Mamie, so excited to have you here today. And Jay, where we usually start, which is a bit different, I think, than most interviews, is rather than me reading a bio that I'll probably mix up some words of and not know a name, uh, we usually get the guests to tell us just a little bit about themselves, knowing that we're going to dive in deeper anyway, so you don't have to worry about how deep you go. But uh, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about yourself for those that may be discovering you for the first time today? Sure, sure. Uh, Well, my name is uh, Jay Maney, and uh, I'm a radio talk show host for the Jay Maney Talk Show here to Cumulus Media Station here in Dallas, Fort Worth, which is how you and I sort of uh, got a chance to build our rapport, our relationship. You were a guest on the show recently. Uh, But I'm also a 10-time author. Uh, I have been in the world of finance and sales uh, for the longest, since 1999. Uh, I got my first start as an entrepreneur when I was 13 years old. I used to live in New York City in Manhattan, a place called Spanish Harlem. So uh, I know in those days, if you wanted to have any of the nice things, you either became very creative in how you generate an income legally <laughs> or illegally. And I decided to go the legal route and I sort of started my little entrepreneurial experience early, early on um, when I was 13 years old. And from there, I've been involved in personal training at a personal training company. Uh, I used to be an off-Broadway actor. I did some film, some theater, some of a uh, uh, Hollywood, uh, well, I was a SAG actor for a while, no longer a SAG actor. Uh, and then from there, I built my own financial services company. So I've had a financial services company for a while. I got into a ministry for a while, did uh, some of that as well. And then for the last 15 years, there's been a lot of writing, speaking, coaching, sales psychology work, which is my background. And uh, today I share that message with the world. Wow. So, you know, there's a couple of directions that I would love to go from there. And, you know, I think where I'd like to uh, start, perhaps, uh, Jay, is just to ask you about having a radio show. You and I chatted about this uh, sort of off air. But, of course, almost everybody is going the podcast direction right now. And I say almost everybody. I'm not saying listeners. I'm saying more so everybody seems to have a podcast. It's like uh, it's almost like having a, a license. You know, everybody's talked to is like, oh, I, yeah, I got a podcast. Or, oh, you should check out my podcast. Mm-hmm. And so my question is, what made you decide to go the route of radio, like 
uh, first and foremost, previous, uh, outside of maybe going the road of switching over to podcasts or starting with podcasting? Well, when I was in college, I, I had a radio talk show on campus. And then for a little while in Westchester County, I had a radio show. This We're going back about 20 years ago. So I'm familiar with radio, very comfortable behind the mic. And uh, I, I wanted to go back to what I knew was sort of my comfort zone. Not that podcasting wouldn't be. Uh, I mean, you're right. Everyone has a podcast these days. But I wanted to go back to something that I knew that I could uh, certainly just fall back into past experiences where it would be um, you know, very simple for me to get some content on the air. Uh, and I also know the powerful aspect of radio broadcasting is very different from podcasting. Yeah, there's a much greater reach and you can leverage the radio station's notoriety. And especially if it's a good station, part of a good group, uh, already with that comes the exposure and the credibility of your program, right? Whereas podcasts, you really have to build it up. The other reason I didn't want to do a podcast was, as you just said, Corey, everyone, as they say back in New York, everyone and their mother's got a podcast. <laughs> That's a New York term, by the way, everyone and their mother, right? Um, and it's very difficult to separate yourself when you are in that very crowded space. And unfortunately, and I speak from the hip brother, I think that does a disservice um, to those who are having quality podcasts because it becomes a diluted industry. It's watered down and it does lose the luster of saying I've got a podcast. And, uh, and I've been on some podcasts and, and I, I got to tell you something, some of them, I'm, I just, they're just thrown together. There's no preparation. The quality is terrible. I, I didn't want to get lumped into that. I love it. And, and everything you said to me sums up radio being the answer for you, you know, like in all those areas, like mm -hmm. the, the wide reach and, you know, as you said, getting the credibility at the, at the end of the day, I don't know. And maybe it's because there's so many podcasts. But I was going to say, I don't know why, but whenever I see the radio sort of call numbers, uh, the radio numbers uh, on the station, I look at it differently than podcasting. And I think it's partly because, as you said, everybody um, has a podcast. So whenever you hear somebody's on this radio station or that radio station, uh, you know, I, I feel bad saying this because I have three podcasts, but uh, it, I feel like it, it adds an extra bit of credibility. And, you know, at this time, at a time right now where we podcasting, because everybody has one, maybe sort of growing a little bit more. What that maybe does is it actually allows you to stand out even more so on radio, I think. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And it's interesting because I do have people oftentimes now because podcasting is that common term and they find out that I have a show, they immediately jump to the conclusion, podcast. And, and even those that have been on the show as guests, when they promote the show that they're on, oftentimes I catch them saying, hey, I was a guest on Jay's podcast. <laughs> and it's like, no, it's a broadcast. You know? But you're right. That's, that's kind of the world we live in. So it, it does add better quality, uh, better credibility if you have those uh, station frequencies to say that you're a part of. Well, I'll tell you, uh, you know, again, quite frankly, myself, whenever so everything's about positioning, as long as you're doing it the right legal and ethical way. But, you know, whenever I started in the podcasting world, I actually started with blog talk radio. And oh. some people were like, oh, no, you got to go the iTunes route. Well, iTunes was just a new thing, but you got to go the podcasting route. And my thinking was, no, I'm going to go the route of saying I have an online radio show because the radio had such a cachet to it. And then on top mm -hmm. of that, my first, after blog talk, my first place that I went was Stitcher and they called it Stitcher Satellite Radio. And technically 
you can get Stitcher inside your car. Uh, so and now you have to have your phone hooked up to it, which is what they don't tell you, but it can be inside All your right. car. They call it satellite radio. So, like, to me, it was actually more credibility early in those days to say I had an online radio show that was also on satellite radio. You know, like, it's oh, yeah. actually more credible. And to this, you know, to some degree, it probably still is. But that I leveraged it that way early on. And, again, maybe I got caught up in the lingo as well as everybody. I guess so do I. But one mm-hmm. thing with mine is I did start 12 years ago. It was still in the early stages of podcast. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to be honest, that show – you know, because in po- the podcasting world, there's only one website I know where you can find it, you know, how well your show is doing. And it's not even number, sale, uh, listenership numbers. It's based on just what percentage you are. So how, like, are you in the top 5% of all podcasts or what have you? Our show has been in the top 1% or less for years. And the reason is, Jay, I think is because we started so early. So we got a head mm-hmm. start. It's like always when you're first in, like if you're, you know, what was it, Heinz Ketchup, uh, they were first in and they nobody's ever overtaken them. And apparently they were hunts. I didn't know this before hunts took over pickles. They were hunts and nobody could overtake them mm-hmm. until they mm-hmm. until they started losing their focus and distract themselves making ketchup. And I often feel first in, you have the better chance. And so I started early. So I think that gave us a quick boost and you get a lot of subscribers quicker and that helped us. But it's rough because I started a second podcast six years ago. That podcast has done well. It's in the top 5%. But I don't think it'll ever reach the other one because solely because of the fact that it, I started so much later. And so I well, think well, like one of the, yeah. well, one of the thing that not to interrupt you, one of the things that you mentioned, which was, I was, I was thinking about that was you're right. Uh, there's over right currently 1.1 million podcasts that are out there. And every day there's brand new ones that are being registered and put out on the, on the waves. The top 1% usually are the ones that are recognized. So the fact that you're in a top 1% is a big deal. But here's why I believe yours isn't at 1%. is because, number one, you started early, but you've been very consistent. You've got a tremendous amount of episodes. Consistency, consistency, consistency. One of the things I see as a flaw for the podcast that don't make it or aren't very successful, they don't have consistency. They kind of record something every now and then, and then all of a sudden they won't have anything for many, many, many months. And then they got a podcast, and it's not really a quality You've got quality, you've got consistency, and your production is, is strong and you promote it well. That's the reason why I, I noticed it's it's you know it's it's high ranking one um, because of those reasons. But you have to be in it for the long haul. Well, and be you. consistent. So yeah. Well, and I so appreciate that, Jay. And I'll, you know, just before we move into a different area, I'll add something to what you just said, which is uh, the idea of that consistency. One of the other great things I think about radio is and and broadcasting is you're uh you're forced to be consistent because your show won't stick around if you, like if you have a show that airs every wednesday at three and you just don't show up and you're like ah just right. miss the next three weeks uh chances are at some point they're gonna say well we're gonna find somebody else for that spot like you don't really have that choice it's like tv back and and it's still like that but you know cable is different now but in general but you know cable like if you have a show that's on tuesday at seven you see it all the time when they move that show to a different night for that one week, the ratings sometimes drop in half. People want to know, this is when I tune in for this show. And so I think radio forces you to do that. And podcasting, it's the Wild West, so you're not forced to do it. So you just kind of do whatever you want. Exactly, exactly. And, and that's probably why, I i forget what I heard, like the, they call it the burn rate, but the rate at which people drop off podcasting. But I think it's like nine episodes in. That's like the end. Wow, it's wow. Low. It's really low. Yeah, but I, you know, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. Well, another part to that, too, is that 
they're obviously they go into it thinking I'm going to have a certain listenership. And, you know, obviously as well, when people go into that, the listenership they think they're going to have is really big. Like they're like, oh, mm -hmm. I better have 10,000 listeners in the first three weeks. Mm -hmm. And right. when it doesn't happen, I think that also is what happens to people. They go, oh, I didn't get the big listenership I thought was just going to come because I built it. And then after nine weeks, you know, most shows I would say in nine weeks probably have maybe podcasts maybe 50 listeners at most an episode. Mm -hmm. And so they're probably going, why am I doing all this work for 50 listeners? Now I would counter that, but you know, not enough time in the world to change every podcaster's mind, but I would counter that because podcasting is a very intimate thing. If you are consistent, if you have a hundred people on your show, I always say to people, would you go down to the closest venue and speak to a hundred people to share your message? If they were sitting there willing to listen to it and were raving fans. Oh, absolutely. Every day of the week. You know, then why are you discounting 100 people? Because that's your listenership. So that's I do right. think also people jump off or don't promote it or don't do things properly because they're maybe embarrassed. I'm only having this many listeners. But is it only that many? If they are raving fans, what's that? What's the book? It's either a thousand. I think it's a thousand raving fans. Mm -hmm. Well, nine weeks in, you have 100 that are coming back every week. You're already a tenth of the way there, but most people quit by that point. So I, I, t I tell these guys when I hear they're, they're getting started with the radio or blogging or whatever it is, I say, listen, don't despise humble beginnings. Mm -hmm. Don't despise humble beginnings. You've got to start somewhere. And then the the, the greater that journey to reach those higher levels of, of success and listenership in this case, uh, it just makes your your testimony all the much stronger. You know, yeah, nobody, no one's inspired by an overnight fluke. And I know tons of overnight flukes. They, they really literally, and you too, you know, them also overnight, they all automatically amass massive downloads. And, and some of that stuff is not even authentic, uh, but it does propel them to top 1%, top 2% of listenership, but they don't have a testimony because it was, it was manufactured, right? It wasn't really authentic. Uh, I'd rather hear from guys like you that are in it 12, 13, 14 years. I want to learn from a guy like you and not from a guy who's an overnight, uh, you know, success. Yeah, it's such a great point. Like, Jay, one of the things that early on was a big thing, I was inside a couple of podcasting groups and everybody's like, oh, did you know you could do this? And it was, to your point, the shortcut. But what the this was is they said, well, you can go, let's say Libsyn, one of the podcast hosts or hosting services. You can put your Libsyn feed on, twi on Twitter. And if a person listens for one second, just because they were scrolling and it started playing, that's considered a download or mm -hmm. listen, I should say. Mm -hmm. And so uh, people, what they knew is they could go, okay, I'm going to schedule my tweets every 10 minutes all day for <laughs> seven days a week. And what's going to happen is realistically back then, I don't know even how it works now at all, but back then you, we were seeing people like go from brand new show to 30,000 listens in a month. Right. Right. The question is how many of those people listen to more than two minutes? Mm -hmm. I don't know the answer to that, but that's, they right. were blowing that up. And then the worst part was those people were actually going to sponsors and saying, look, I got 30,000 listens and go also going to other people and saying, I can teach you how to uh, launch a podcast. I got 30,000 listens. But to your point, did they have the testimony? And right. uh, in those cases, I don't think they did. No. And I, and just, just to finish off this point, cause I know you want to bounce off to something else. You know, one of the things I learned uh, about that very same thing. I spoke to someone who said to me about two years ago, they said, listen, the last thing that the, these really sharp sponsors who have uh, the ability to do analytics, they know when there's authentic growth or fabricated growth. They know that. Like you said, you today you launched, tomorrow you got 50,000 uh, downloads. Okay, that's not authentic. 
They're looking for the guy who has the 100, 200, 300 fans. These are people that are going to – that's your base. They're going to be there every week, and it's going to grow and grow. And that's what you're looking for. That's authentic. Absolutely. Love it. And authenticity is, to me, it's the currency of, of the times and the future. Uh, mm-hmm. At least for now, it, we go through, it's like, uh, I think the last route we went through was personalization was the currency. You know, everybody wanted to personalize to them. I feel mm-hmm. like now authentic, authenticity is the new currency. And Absolutely. how long it'll last, but the truth is authenticity will never go to style. I know mm-hmm. that integrity will never go to style. But right now, not only are they, in st- or not only are they, uh, popular to do and are they the right thing to do but they're you know they're current as well uh so having said that to switch gears a bit jay i wanted to like today i wanted to talk about three areas the first one was podcasting second one was writing so Mm -hmm. uh you have i believe up to 10 10 books out i believe or you're part of 10 books and so i i don't that's another thing you don't see often which is because i think a lot of people you know get the one book out and go okay i'm an author now and then don't do anything beyond Mm -hmm. so it does take um I'm going to call it a little bit of consistency and a little bit of uh, determination to, you know, be involved in 10 books. And mm-hmm. so I want to ask you about that process. What's that like for you? Meaning two part. I always like to ask about the writing and then the marketing, but on the writing side, everybody always asks me, how do you write and what's your approach to writing? And I know different people have different styles. Like some people plan before they write. Some people write every day at this time. Some people just randomly say, okay, I'm feeling that I only write when I have the muse. I'm feeling it right now. I'm going to sit mm-hmm. down. So I'd love to hear, do you have a certain writing style or approach? You know, it's funny. Uh, let's let's start with what you were pointing to early on in, in this particular question, and I'll get to the, the writing style. The, the one thing I've learned early on is everyone, and I didn't believe this in the beginning. I didn't believe it. But when I had heard 13, 14 years ago, when I was questioning, why should I write anything? Who's going to read my stuff, right? Because every, every writer goes through that. Mm-hmm. Every writer goes through that. Um, I, I was encouraged by a guy who had written a couple of books. He said to me, look, for every ear, there's a story to hear. Hmm. For every ear, there is a story to hear. Meaning, don't worry about bestsellers, million dollar uh, 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 copies sold. Your book, your story may only impact a handful of people. And if you're writing to impact not to profit, then it doesn't matter if it's 10, 30, 100, or a 1,000 or a million, right? Somebody's going to be impacted by your story. For every year, there's a story to hear. I was like, wow. That's what motivated me to really get out there and start writing my first book, which was a men's devotional. It was actually called a common man's devotional. At the time, I was a men's ministry director. And I realized, you know what? Uh, Let me write something. That was what's really written for me, which is the first style of writing. I think you have to write something that you not only believe in, but as you're writing it, it's therapeutic. The best written, and when I'm talking about, you know, nonfiction stuff, right? The stuff that's not, you know, it, it's got to be something that as you're writing it, it's therapy. It's, it's, it's filling your soul. It's feeding your soul. That if nobody else reads it, you're like, man, that helped me. <laughs> right? So when I wrote that book, that book actually was it was titled A Common Man because I thought I'm a common guy. What do I who's going to read my stuff? But it resonated with a lot of other men because I related on their level. And then Mm -hmm. from there, I wrote the the entrepreneur's devotional because I felt that there are some biblical principles that an entrepreneur could apply to success. 
I wrote that book again, but I'm writing it for me. So essentially, a lot of the books I've written, which goes to my writing style, I write books as if I were the only one that's going to read them. If I was writing it to myself as the reader, mm -hmm. but then I incorporate my experiences, my, my knowledge, things that I've gone through, lessons I've learned, and, and things that I know that other people are lacking where they could use encouragement, empowerment, instruction, inspiration, teaching on. So I kind of blend it all together in a way that it'll give somebody some actionable stuff to walk away with after they read it. You know, none of my books are fluff. Um, it's it's in your face kind of writing. And I think people appreciate that. Uh, I, I also the writing style is not where it is loaded with pages and pages and pages of stuff because I don't read books that are pages and pages and pages of stuff. If the book has over 70 or 80 pages, I'm probably not even going to buy it. Right? If it's 70 or 80, in fact, I've got books on my desk. If I have more time, I'll show you. If it's a book that I can read within a day or two and a few hours as busy as I am, I'll tend to read that book. So I want to write for that reader who's in the same place. But they could knock it out and say, man, I'm, I could read this again. If you write a book that someone wants to get through it, they're like, I'm not reading that again. Then not that it's not a good book, but they put it down once. How much of an impact did it make? But if they want to reread it because it's brief and it's impacting, that one has stickability. And that's a book they're more likely to share than that 400 page novel that once they read it, man, that thing is gone. Okay. So that's my writing style. No, and I totally appreciate that. And you're right. I I read, I tend to read, I, I'm looking around here at different books I have, but I tend to read um, smaller books, like you say, more frequently. And I do reread some books, but the mm -hmm. only books I reread that are really, I'm going to call it thicker books, are like, you know, to me, they're like the books that I can read a, a section or a chapter and mm -hmm. leave and come back four months later and I don't feel like I lost anything. So example yeah. is Think and Grow Rich. I reread it almost every year. Uh, mm -hmm. How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. I read mm -hmm. it quite regularly. Those are two somewhat big books. Uh, a book I have near me right now is Jeff Walker's launch book. It's a fair sized book. It'll mm -hmm. take me a while to read it, but I already read he, his previous one was a paperback and it was smaller. So I read the same book and he's just updated it. So what I'm doing is I'm skipping parts that I already okay. know yeah. and going to the newly added parts. And so again, I mean, I, I find it tough to to read it in one you know one round. Like I, I take pieces, and it might take me a while to read it. But then I got six of my four agreements, which is a smaller book, and I'll mm -hmm. reread this one probably you know three times a year because it's right. so small. It's like right, those so people can see it here. It's and it, it's not even as small as you're talking about, but it's like 140 pages. It's still a fairly small book. Yeah. And yeah, so I'm the same as you. And, and so I appreciate that writing. And it is a style, I think. And, you know, to that point as well, um, I feel like something you said here with the consistency is people ask me, you know, when it comes to books, uh, what should I do here? What should I do there? And I, I always say to people, the first thing is write a good book. You know, I, I see so many people now with the event of, let's say, uh, Create Space or Amazon where you can pump a book at people even promote it. Like I, you can have your book in 24 hours from not, from not even being written yet. I'd love to see the book that's written and released in 24 hours. In fact, I'd love to see it the outside, but I'm not going to read it. And right. what I'm getting at there, Jay, is that I still think you should have a quality product. Now you can, I believe you can have a quality book written in 30 days, but I don't yes. think that, uh, you know, if you write a book 
no editing, no looking at it again, just like type and go and press print. I think uh, it's going to be, as you said, it's going to be harder to have people pass that book along or tell mm-hmm. other people because they might be hung up on the fact that Christ, I can hardly read this because the, the word does three times in a row in spots. And so I, I really think that we, you should make a good, it's like anything. If you want to um, have clients that come back, you can create something that's viral, but not if people return because it's not a good quality. But I think if you have a, what, who says it? Seth Godin. You know, if, if you, he talks yeah. about having a remarkable product. If you have mm-hmm. a remarkable product, people will tell other people and people will return. Right. And so I think the right. book should be remarkable first and then focus on everything else. So I love that you are taking into account what's a book I'd like to read. Part of that means it's a short book. And uh, what's a book I would read more than once. Like, I love that you're actually, you have a strategy behind why you're writing a short book. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things, yeah, and, and one of the things you mentioned, and I'm glad we're having this conversation because I think there are a lot of people that want to write. They, they've got this unction. They just know that they've got a story within inside of them to share, but they're, they don't have a writing style. Their grammar isn't the best, right? But there's a message there. So I encourage that person, just like I encourage people that I sometimes coach when they're writing their first book, um, get somebody to help you write the book. It's okay. Like my brother is a perfect example. He's got a great story. He's got a, about a real estate story. Um, he's one of the top guys in New York. He's got great content, but he's not really a writer. So that's what's holding him back. So I said to him, partner up with a writer who can who can bring your your message, your thoughts to life in a you know properly written book with with grammar and and great uh, connotations. Don't let yourself get held back because of that. There's plenty of people that will help you write the book, not ghost write the book. But they will help you write the book. In other words, putting your thoughts into their words. So, um, and I think a lot of people they don't they don't they see that as being an authentic writing, but it really is. Just because you get somebody to write the words, they're writing your thoughts. It's a collaboration. Yeah, it's a great point. There's two books that I would say um, changed. Well, both I would say have changed. Well, one for sure changed millions of lives. Perhaps the other one is is close to a million, if not millions. But two books I can think of where the writers got other people to help them write it. And those two authors are certainly not looked down upon because they had somebody help mm-hmm. them write it. One is uh, Robert Kiyosaki with Rich Dad Poor Dad. Right. So he, uh, he yeah. said, I'm not, a gra- I'm not a best-selling writer. I'm a best-selling author. And he mm-hmm. said, if you see my first drafts of the book, you would not, you would not buy the book. And, mm-hmm. But what I took from that when he said it is he wrote the first draft. He still did r- some writing. Mm-hmm. But he had Sharon Lecter who helped him write almost all of those books. And she's Mm -hmm. a uh, prolific writer. Mm -hmm. And the two of them together partnered. That book series has sold 26 million copies now. So imagine if he said, I'm not a writer. And so I agree with you totally. And then the other person I was thinking of was Bob Berg, who uh, has The uh, Mm Go-Giver, which is, I I think, I feel like it sold over a million copies. But that book was uh, co-written I don't have. I don't know why, but I just lost his name. But it's a guy who uh, co-writes. He does do ghostwriting, but he co-writes a lot of big books. He wrote co-wrote the Slight Edge, uh, that book, which was a huge seller. Uh, and Bob and him have written like eight books together. But he's wow. written co-written every book with Bob uh, around the Go Giver type series. And so again, they're writing together. They're sitting in a room writing together. They're tossing ideas around. But I respect the fact that Bob is saying, you know what, this makes our co- our partnership makes this book better. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know this, but Bob might be able to write the book himself, but he recognizes there's a power in uh, having a co-writer with him. And with Robert Kiyosaki, he said he needed somebody to help him kind of pretty mm-hmm. up the book. Mm-hmm. But to the point about like your brother, I think 
if somebody has an amazing story in them, however they get the story out, it needs to get out because it's going to impact lives. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I think the, the worst thing that a person can feel at the end of the day is regret that they didn't do it. You know, in the end, if you, if you step out in faith and, and you've got the courage to get it done and you get it done and it, it doesn't, it's not the quality or it doesn't do much, at least you could walk away saying, I gave it a shot. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe no one really was interested in my story because it wasn't that exciting or my lessons and my teachings or whatever it is I'm going to talk about, but I don't have regret that I didn't do it. I gave it a shot. And that's 95% of what most people never do. They never give it a shot. So sometimes uh, the the sense of of accomplishment, even if it's not successful accomplishment, sure beats the hell out of regret. Yeah. Just to validate what you just said, Jay, and then I want to ask one more thing about the book side, but just to validate what you just said, I've done, uh, you know, a lot of people know this. I'm obsessed with interviews. So I've done thousands. I mean, we're, we're over 6,000 now, which is insane to think about. And whenever I think about that, um, I often think of what are the common traits. And one of the things I've discovered is more people um, struggle with regret than failure. Like, in other words, people have a bigger challenge with something they wish they would have done mm-hmm. that at the time they thought, oh, I can't do that and just didn't do it. They regret that more than the thing they did and failed on. And I believe, I don't know the percentages, but I believe based on what I've studied and the interviews I've done, that regret may be even as many as two times greater than than dealing with failure. And so to your point, I think to regret not having your story out in the world, I mean, to me, that's that would be the saddest thing. And, and by the way, Listen, I love I, that too. Like, I'm not saying I'm above that because I had, I was going to, write my first book 10 years before I did. And what got me going was I actually wrote in a compilation book. And by being in a compilation book, I was able to only contribute a chapter, but able to see my my book in print and be in a, uh, an Amazon and become a best-selling author and all those things. And I was like, oh my gosh, we did it. This isn't as mm-hmm. hard as I've been making it. And mm-hmm. that's what kicked me in the butt. But I would have been that person perhaps if I never had that happen, that maybe today still wouldn't have a book. It would still regret that I never did it. So your point, I think, yeah, even if doesn't, there's no shame in co-writing with somebody else. Not everybody's meant to be a writer. No, and you know, and one we could talk about this for hours, but one last point, which is really, really critical, is and this is what I share with those that I'm coaching and encouraging them to write your first book, is it's a legacy piece. Mm. It's a legacy piece because that's the kind of book that your great, 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 great grandkids, your grandkids, one day they'll say, you know, that guy there. That's my great, 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 he didn't sell but two copies and he sold one to her, to grandma, but he wrote that book. And so generations to come, your kids, your great, your generational grandkids will have a chance to hear and, and, and understand what made grandpa tick, what made you tick. It's a legacy piece, right? I've got 10 legacy pieces to leave behind to my kids and my kids, kids and on and on and on. And that is satisfying. I love that you added that because we have a compilation series called Blue Talks. And I, when people say to me, what are the benefits of being in a book? That's one of the things I always say is, you know, this is something that your great, great grandchildren won't be like. And, you know, my grandfather, uh, he raised me like uh, he was basically my my more of my second father. And I'm an only child. My mother's an only child. So when I lost my grandfather, it was a big deal. And my grandfather was a great storyteller, but he never told me all the stories. 
And, mm. you know, and so I often think if, if I would have written even, cause he was, he was grade three education, but if I would have written a book with him telling me the stories, that would have been invaluable to me. It would have been priceless. Right. And so I tell people, don't let that go by you. You know what? It doesn't, doesn't matter if you're with in our book, but however you get that, your story out, get it out because otherwise how, how do your grand, like you say, your great grandchildren know your story. It's exactly and, right. Later on in life, that's the, you know, those are the things that are worth more than the money. So I love that you added that. And then I said I want to ask one more thing about books. And I'll just ask it really quickly. And you can go in as depth as you want to, Jay. But when it comes to the books that you put out, are there any uh, maybe people, our people in our community are always looking for strategy. But are, are there any marketing strategies or things that you tried that you said, whoa, that moved the needle more than I thought? Or anything you can share around the marketing side that you do that may be a bit unique from what others do? Yeah, I, I think you have to leverage even there's a lot of ways to leverage um, online. But I think one of the things I've done that I've learned it later on and I'm going to go back and do it with some of my early books. I'm going to re-release with revisions and additions and things like that. Um, but LinkedIn events, if you're on LinkedIn, you can host a LinkedIn event that talks a little bit about something that is in your book. OK, just like a little teaser trailer, maybe a 15 minute um, 20 minute talk about a particular topic. I did that for my book, seven powerful techniques for subconscious communication. I actually did a LinkedIn webinar uh, with that. Um, the other thing you could also do is little video clips of something in your book. And you can blast that on Instagram, you know, little video story on Facebook, little video story. Uh, so they just kind of just whets the appetite of whoever is, is online, whoever's following you, whatever is going on with your social media uh, uh, platforms. But it gives them a little taste. It's just a little taste, a little taste, a little taste. And of course, getting on podcasts as well gives you a chance to share that message on someone else's platform. But if, for example, on my show, on the radio show, one of the things that I do two or three times a month is I highlight brand new offers. So if you've got your bestseller, or you're not, it's, it's not, it's not the platform for you. It's the platform for someone that says, I just got a book out. I want immediate people. I want people to immediately hear my story in my book. So if there's an opportunity to get on a radio show um, to talk about your book, you have to take all the options that are available to you. And by the way, let me just say this. Do not be afraid to invest in yourself with marketing dollars. Now, it's amazing, Corey, and I'm sure you're familiar with your you've spoken with so many folks so over the course of your career, how there are people they want they want a, a champagne life, but they've got ripple budget. They've got a beer budget, right? Ripple, the old Sanford and Son ripple. Yeah, you can't do that. Uh, if you're going to be successful, you have to understand it's going to take the investment of your time and energy and money. Mm -hmm. If you forget the money part, time and energy is only going to take you so far. You need money to invest in the marketing and this and that and the other. And I, I'm amazed at so many people that call themselves entrepreneurs and business owners and, and success seekers, but they're, they're very stingy when it comes to investing in their own success marketing wise, not millions of dollars, but a few hundred dollars is not a whole lot to ask if it's going to give you exposure where your book or your product can be, can be highlighted. Um, so you, you have to kind of do those things. I believe if you're going to have success in anything, but especially showcasing a brand new book. I love it. And, uh, you've given me a good segue to my last part. I want to ask you, we got about five minutes left and I want to ask you about speaking, but you gave me a good segue. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the speaker, Eric Thomas. 
Yes. Yeah. yeah. I know Kirk Conley. Yeah. So Eric, the hip hop preacher, the hip hop preacher. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, one of the things that he said that I love, and it, it's not exactly what you're talking about in the sense that he wasn't talking about money, but it's the same type of thing, which is uh, with the champagne lifestyle I met. I love how he says, you want my lifestyle, but you don't want my grind. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how people are like, oh, Eric, I love, you know, I'd love to have your life traveling on planes and this and that. But he said, you don't want to, and not that you have to like do the Gary B hustle thing all the time, but basically he's saying you're not willing to get up at five in the morning. To travel to the speaking engagement, but you want the lifestyle that I have because I'm willing to do that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the same type of thing. Like um, you have to put it in, whether it's like you said, the time or the money or the hustle or whatever it is, but you can't expect the rewards of somebody else if you're not willing to put in what they put in. Exactly. I mean, it's it's delusional. Uh, There there is a blog and a video that I've put out there called Eat, and I have fun with it. I know I'm 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 called the I'm the self-titled number one world number one in the world action tainer. So I'm an entertainer that's going to do, uh, is going to entertain you so that you can take action, action tainer. The number one in the world because there's nobody else. If there's nobody else, you're number one. <laughs> right? Love it. So one of the things I talk about is, in a fun way, I said, don't, don't fall prey to the EDD disease. Now, when guys are in the audience, they know what EDD stands for, right? But I call it not that EDD. I call it EDD because it's entrepreneurial delusion disorder. Mm. Wow. I love that. Entrepreneurial delusion disorder where you think that you're going to arrive like like um, Eric Thomas says is some high level of success, but you're not willing to do the work. You're delusional. <laughs> it's a <Yep>. disorder. <laughs> You're in good company because you you made when you said the the world's number one. It makes me think of uh, and this will this will dive me into the speaking side, but it makes me think of Larry Wingett. I don't know if you're familiar with him as well, but he's the guy that has the books like "You're Broken, It's Your Own Fault, and I Can Prove It." Like, <laughs> very politically incorrect uh, books back in like no, today they would be like he had 11 New York Times bestsellers with names like that. And today mm-hmm. I feel like somebody would be, I hate to say it, but somebody would be trying to cancel him. But yeah, yeah. he did it. So he he actually called himself the world's first irritational speaker. Oh, wow. That's and awesome. It. And, and it's not, <laughs> like, he, he would go on, he, he was on Oprah and Larry King Live multiple times. And that's what they called him. We want to bring out our next guest. He's the world's first. Like it stuck. It was really brilliant. But again, he was the only one. So he could say he was the first. And then also if he wanted, he could have said he's the number one. And even if 10 other people eventually called himself that, he would have still been the number one because he started long before and had a big head start. But anyway, just good segue to ask you the last part, which is about speaking. I'd love to hear, I'm really curious for speakers uh, because of the pandemic, because of COVID, how that affected them and how they've maybe pivoted or what they've done to pivot or if they pivoted. Because some people might have just said, I'm putting the speaking on hold for a while. Uh, But I'd love to hear how... A, the COVID or, you know, COVID or the pandemic has affected you in terms of your speaking. And then B, I just want to ask you a question or two about speaking. But first and foremost, what has it done to your speaking? You know, the minute the pandemic hit, just like every other speaker, a lot of bookings I had completely on ice. And and some of those bookings, they've just not, they've, they've either canceled or they've gone to a virtual platform. Um, that's difficult for me. I'm, I'm very effective whether it's virtual or live, but I'm very animated. So for me, and I bring a lot of energy, it's very difficult to, to transcend that virtually, right? Mm-hmm. You can do the best you can. So there's some teachers and, and speakers that virtually, they're, they're, it doesn't matter, right? 
But for me, it's different. So for me, it hurt me because people need to see, people need to experience me there. Um, so obviously some of those things were canceled or some of them have gone virtual. So my virtual speaking has gone up, but the result from it have not been what they could have been had they been in person. Right. Okay. Because I'm, I'm a guy that I want people to walk away thinking to themselves, that guy's memorable. And you only do that when it's in, in, in physical form. Right. Um, so yeah, my speaking gigs have not hurt, have not been hurt to the extent of less than they've, they've pivoted to something virtual, but the result of what I'm looking for has not been what I know I could have received had it been live. And you're, you're certainly not alone, Jay. Like, uh, I've asked this question to quite a few speakers and I've had a lot of them say to me similar, you know, that they didn't have the results they wanted because they like being live uh, to the point where people, some people saying I'm not even doing them like virtual. I just, I'm only doing live, but I, the only exceptions I've heard to that really is somebody like a Les Brown, you know, so Les was telling us that his bookings have been about the same, but he can do more bookings now because he doesn't have to leave his computer. But the thing with Les, like we've had him on for interviews and even just his laugh, People are like I, I tune in and listen to that guy's laugh. He's you yeah, know, he's got whatever that that is. But even less. I mean, this little box can't capture all of what he is. If right. he's live, right. it's another another level. But even somebody that has that next level, I think still with the virtual, he's as doing almost as good as you could do. Where you know the bookings are almost the same amount. Uh, he's still getting booked like crazy. But I think for him, it's more that he doesn't want to get on a plane anymore. <laughs> so he's oh, like, absolutely. I'll yeah. make this work. But he's the exception. Like most of the speakers I'm talking to either a don't like virtual as much, but they're still doing it or B are just saying, I'm just waiting for live to come back around. It's interesting for me to see that. Cause I thought I was going to hear all these people say, I'm so glad we have virtual now and live is done. And you know, I thought that I would hear a lot of that. And to be honest, I haven't. No, I did a talk last week, uh, last two Fridays ago, I asked two Fridays from this past stuff uh, from tomorrow. And it was interesting. Toastmasters, which you've heard of Toastmasters, right? Absolutely. Um, I'm not a Toastmaster member, but I was asked to speak to be one of their, their Friday night keynote speaker and the Dallas uh, convention. And they had the following night, the actual 2020 Toastmaster world champion speaker. So I was like, wow, I'm speaking alongside that guy. He's the world champion. They went outside of their own to bring me in. And the, the point I'm making is everybody was so happy that there was a live, it was their first live events from two years ago and everybody was so happy. So the message was received much better by the attendees themselves, let alone the, us as the speakers, the attendees loved the fact that it was live. Um, so I think from their perspective, they wanted to, they, they're looking for something that's uh, a live experience as well. People yeah, are tired of Zoom. I think. Yeah. I'm the same thing. Like I, you know, just to put it in perspective, last night we had a zoom call for one of our groups and it's more just like, uh, I'm trying to get, everybody more engaged and getting getting to know each other and networking and stuff uh so we did our first zoom call for our blue talks community and i i think and i'm, I'm going by memory on this and because i only looked at the bottom a couple times but i think we had about 35 people there um mm -hmm. which i was pretty happy with because we we mentioned we were going to do it and then we didn't it, my own fault we didn't say anything about it really until the day before and said oh by the way it's tomorrow night so of course you have some people that are like they said they were in but then put didn't put it in their calendar mm -hmm. and now they couldn't mm -hmm. make it but the point I was going to make with it is I don't, you know, I, I loved it and it's the best we can do without being able to be there live. 
but it's such a different feeling. Like me, because I was hosting it essentially. And to get that feedback that you would normally get if you're there live, it's just a totally different thing. Like you're trying to look on the screen and see reactions and, you know, somebody, uh, do we have any questions? And two or three people are trying to talk and you have to try to, whereas if it was the audience, you know, and, and of course they can put their hand up, but if it's the audience and they put their hand up, you pretty much are looking around, you can see who it is. But when you're on a screen mm -hmm. with 30 people and you're looking at it's like five per things with six rows, you're trying to keep up with all that. It's right. hard to get that same feel. And you, and you lose your flow. You lose your flow. You know, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I see yeah. Tony Robbins had this. Uh, I don't know if you saw it, but when he did his last virtual event, it mm -hmm. was like he had all these the massive yeah. screens in front of him, like floor mm -hmm. to ceiling screens and that. Mm -hmm. And so he had, I forget the number, it was like 17,000 people or something. And I'd be curious to know if it felt the same for him because I can't imagine, like, I think he'd normally have 5,000 people at the live event versus maybe 17,000 mm -hmm. more people, but it's all little dots on a screen. Right. I'd be interested right. to know if he found it the same way. Like, if, in other words, if he goes, oh, this is so much easier now. I can bring more people. We don't have to travel. Or if he's going, oh, I miss that energy. And I'm guessing a guy like him is missing the energy. Oh, absolutely. He'd rather take 5,000 in a, in a uh, cocoon environment that's energetic than 17,000 where people can just easily, you know, hit that uh, not, not share screen button and, you know, go to the bathroom. or And and, and you actually you notice that's the thing that's distracting from Zoom. You notice sometimes when people log off because their screen goes dark or they put their picture up. It's, it's yeah, I, the live version, I would suspect that he would certainly appreciate more. Absolutely. Well, and, and like I said, I just like to ask everybody their experience with it. So, Jay, you've been an absolute pleasure. I'll call it to be continued. We, we went a bit longer than I usually do, and I'm still uh, thinking we didn't even scratch the surface but i think uh we gave people a great taste of who you are and so with your permission i'll call it a to be continued but i also okay. before we let you run i want to ask you maybe the most important question which is no matter how long the conversation is there's always going to be people that want to connect further want to jump on social media uh follow you but you know want to know about the books that we talked about so is there a hub or a place where you'd normally send people they can go right to my site j the uh djmaney.com there, the T H E J A Y M A Y M I. They can go from there to my book uh, site. They can find my books. They can find my merchandise. I've got some pretty cool merchandise in my own online store called Thriveology. Get some cool stuff in there. From there, they can link right to the jmamietalkshow.com. So that's the central hub. And from there, they'll find where they want to go. I love it. And I love that you had one spot every now and then I'll, I'll, I'll say two and I know I shouldn't, but I love that you have one spot because I find with, with all of us, we're so busy now that if you say, go to this website for this, go here for this, go here for that. Most people will probably just freeze and not do anything. So right. one hub I think is always the easiest right route. So I'm glad you did that. So Jay, this has been an absolute pleasure. As I mentioned uh, again, to be continued, my friend, and thank you for crushing it here. And this is uh you know, this is just starting because this will make its way out to, you know, some people are listening to me right now on the podcast. Some are listening here. Uh, some are listening on our platforms like Apple TV and stuff. So mm -hmm. this will have a good long shelf life, Jay. So I thank Great. you for bringing stuff that was timeless to make that possible. Well, I appreciate the invitation. I appreciate the Absolutely. invitation. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. And I have another interview coming up later today with Chandler Bolt talking about books uh, heavily. So join us then. But I'll send more details inside the group. Thanks, everyone. Thanks again, Jay.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.